I, I think fundamentally a company is just a group of people. That's yeah. all it is. So you obviously want to hire smart people. And once you've hired smart people, you don't want to be micromanaging. Otherwise, you shouldn't hire these smart people. You should just hire people just here to execute. What you're really trying to do is enable them to make decisions, but accepting that some of those decisions are going to fail. And the rest is just trust and open communication and allowing people to fail. I feel like that is a really big thing because I don't have the confidence that if I was the one making every single decision that I wouldn't be wrong. I believe that I will probably be wrong half the time. You should give that same kind of room to fail to your team as long as it's like a logical choice at the time that all the logic behind the decision makes sense. I feel like it's okay to fail. We'd like to introduce and thank Hughes Castell, a premier legal search firm in Asia and a pioneer in legal and compliance search in Greater China since 1986. Hughes Castell's trusted brand name gives it unparalleled ability to engage top-level legal talent in a broad spectrum of industries and commerce, including top Fortune 500 corporations, banks, and international law firms. I know I've personally worked with Hughes Castell before both as a candidate and as a client. I can assure everyone that their level of service is absolutely excellent through and through. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Ganbei and China Digital Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Art Dicker. Today is co-hosting with Paul Lin. Welcome, Paul. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to do this. Our guest is Alex Lee. He is the CEO of Kwol. And Kwol is an enterprise SaaS Chinese social media management platform. Great to have you here, Alex. Thanks, Art. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Really happy to be on the podcast. Yeah, let's jump into it. I know you guys personally from working with you before as, as my other life as a lawyer. And so I know a little bit about your story and I think it's a fascinating story. And I know Paul has been, been uh, get, gotten to know you guys over the years. You've been in China now for doing this for a few years now. Mm. Maybe you want to take a second now before we forget, just because I know people have probably heard of Kwol. You have the, 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 the social media landscape that I think you're well known for. Uh, but then can you walk us through a little bit for people who are not as familiar with what the product is, what it, why pe people are so happy about using it? Yeah, sure. Kwol, like our counterpart Hootsuite, years ago came out as a product, internal product of an agency because as an agency, you manage a lot of different platforms. Initially, our biggest pain point that we're trying to solve is multi-account management. And to this day, that, that is still a very strong pillar that we do. But I feel like the service that we provide or like the market conditions have actually shifted. Before, when we first started, we were only able to serve people who had a lot of accounts on WeChat or a lot of accounts on because those are the dominant platforms. But these days, what I've been talking about to, in a lot of different channels is we see a decentralization of social networks. What does that mean? It means an enterprise that used to do WeChat, WeChat and Weibo are now doing five, six different networks. They're doing Xiaohongshu, they're doing Douyin, they're doing Zhihu, they're doing all kinds of stuff. So you have the like same team managing way more accounts. And this, for us, is great for business. I think 30% of teams these days are managing four to five different channels for each brand. Well, two years ago, it was two. So before, we only had that need, the multi-account need, from people who just had hundreds of Weibo accounts. But these days, we can work with one customer and solve that multi-account need because it's multi-account across different platforms. For us, we currently solve 
the problem for WeChat, Weibo, Douyin, Kuaishou, and we're about to launch two more networks, really Zhihu, probably next year. Like some of them are already in beta, but wow. like we'll have full release next year. So we'll be serving six networks. Xiaohongshu is something that we're always trying to work on, but again, it really depends on them, not really on us. But again, like I think we solve that issue really well for a lot of customers. The second thing that we are trying to solve efficiency in internal communications. What we understand is, for the past twenty years, the market has moved so fast that content is created like a like a craftsman. You have a smart person on your team. Great, you're going to do great content. Congratulations.、Mm -hmm. But what we realize is, as you have more networks and as the market become more competitive, you have a lot more specialization. So before you just have one person doing all that stuff. Now you have a designer, you have a video a videographer, you have a writer, you have somebody checking on it. You might have something something that deal with reporting.、Mm -hmm. So now it's much becoming like a teamwork. So when it's a team of people doing content. Then I think what we do is upgrade the current system, which is a bunch of individual craftsmen working in a non-collaborative environment,、mm -hmm. to upgrade that into an assembly line.、Mm -hmm. Believe that great content is repeatable if you have a great system、mm -hmm. of producing that content. So the system is repeatable. We provide the process and the system that joins everybody together on an assembly line. And the end product is repeatably good content,、mm. so that is something that we do, which is the collaboration and the transparency component. The third thing that we provide is reporting. I think reporting works in two ways. One, how do we get insights or actionable insights from existing content that we do? So we have a lot of features that help you figure that out. What type of content is working well? What type of content is not working well? Secondly, reporting is also part of trans. Transparency and alignment.、Mm -hmm. So we do have a lot of clients that might have that may have offices overseas, and they、mm -hmm. want to have like more reports. Or if you're a large multi-brand organization like L'Oreal, you have 30 different teams. How、mm -hmm. do you get reporting done on time? And how do you get reporting on the same format?、Mm -hmm. And then how do you have it all together? That's another thing. But as we kind of progress, like we always, we also found like new things that we served recently. I think security has become a a big selling point for us. So a more sophisticated enterprise approval process, some kind of process of approving content for large enterprises, that is becoming a bigger need as we are working with more local companies. So we recently started working with probably the biggest Chinese sports brand, and they came to us for a simple reason. One of their One of their marketing junior marketers sent out a Weibo post, and they had the account logged in on their own phone. So they sent it. They sent a personal one、oh, to、no. their company account.、Oh, okay. Simple things like that, and they freaked out. And they're like, "Okay, in this political environment or economic environment, like we、yeah. have to be more careful." And they came in and they brought all of their like different BUs on onto Kwall to have an approval process and remove the staff. From directly connecting to、right. the backend, human error. Yeah. So, you, so what Cable does is like we we filter you, filter the junior staff away from the backend, like、yeah. platform backend, and yep, bring、yeah. all to Cable backend.、Yeah. So then they cannot just send something out whenever they want,、uh, whenever they want to,、yeah. and skipping the approval process.、Yeah. So that is also the same thing that's happening with some of the nationalized enterprises that we're working. Security is such a big component.、Mm. How do you protect your passwords? How do we make sure that content that we don't want to get sent out don't get sent、mm. out? So that is something that we didn't really plan on, but 
people are buying our solution mm. to solve that issue. I think the product's always evolving. Like in the future, like in the next year or two, we're going to be looking at a lot more machine learning and AI capabilities to make the process even easier. Mm. Because we always get the request like, oh, it's great that you have these manual functions to solve these issues, but can we make them smarter? So I think making features smarter is something that we will be doing a lot more of going forward into 2023. Let me jump right into the first question, the question about TAM, a total addressable market. The big news in the last a year ago was the Sequoia China, which our listeners probably know is the Chinese venture capital fund, invested $5 million in you guys. And traditionally, when you have a lot of foreigner DNA or a company has been traditionally serving a foreign customer base in China, I imagine it's hard to get that funding or convince your investors that you can switch to the domestic market, right, which is obviously a bigger, much bigger pie. So what did Sequoia China see in you guys and the market size for your product that maybe other people weren't seeing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think we can look at it from a few different angles. First of all, I think MarTech overall was really hot in 2020 and 20, all the way until end of 2021, with the market peaking probably at the end of 2021. Join that up with the whole SaaS story. I think that's what the LPs and the GPs were looking at from a fund perspective. What they were looking at is they're trying to find companies that have very low churn rate, very good like renew rates. They're looking for businesses that can actually operate and make profit with a pure SaaS model. In terms of TAM, I think overall, they were very confident in the market that we're in, which is MarTech overall. And they are certainly looking at comparables between the US market and the China market. Knowing that the Chinese market is 20 times smaller than the North American market uh, for SaaS. Right, so there's huge room to grow, and that was the that they were betting on. In terms of our own situation, where we have foreign founders and we have foreign customers, I feel like that has shifted quite a bit as well. If anything, the I think the previous situation was that Chinese local VCs were just not going to be investing into foreign-led companies with foreign clients. And that's still, that's actually more true today. I think the narrative or the thesis behind a lot of the investment funds for the past 20 years in China is that we're a longing China. So we're looking at domestic market growth and they believe that with, with a bit of nationalist pride that Chinese founders somehow have a competitive edge because they understand a local market, they are, China is growing, Chinese founders work harder. There's all of that, the 996 culture, right? Like only 996 can win basically, that whole culture behind it. Um, but when it comes back to our own company, and I feel like this is how we overcame that, is first of all, like I am the CEO of the company and I am Chinese. So that fixed that problem. The second thing is where we see at the beginning, a majority of our customers all the way up until, until last year were foreign enterprises. But the buyers at those foreign enterprises are mostly Chinese. Mm -hmm. So that is very different. I think the change of leadership for a lot of global enterprises in China, we have a lot more local Chinese, and I'm not talking about Hong Kongese or Singaporeans or Malaysians, I'm talking local Chinese people being in leadership positions and they are making the purchases. So with that said, I feel like the story becomes much more convincing that when these people move on, which we have seen, you know, 
people move on from large global sports brands to large Chinese sports brands, for example. That talent trans transfer shows the investors that we are able to work with local buyers as well. And I think this year, after we took the money, we definitely proved that we're able to do that. We're starting to have Chinese nationalized companies or like government-owned enterprises mm -hmm. buying our solution. In that way, I guess they, they are proven to be true. But yes, as a foreigner in China, unless you're doing something cross-border, I feel like you would definitely have a harder time raising money from local investors. Is, can I just build on what you're saying here? Because I always like to think that product for product, you're competing on the capabilities of what you're building. And it's not about, is the CEO Chinese? Is the CEO foreigner? Based on my experience working for multinationals like Unilever and P&G, 99% of the people that work there are all local Chinese. Right, they're, they have, they're smart as heck, they understand the market, but they're sophisticated enough to have a global understanding. And your product is very interesting because it is, it's a very, it's a very good product within the market that has a need for a product, your solution. For me, it's, I find it, and maybe you could shed some light on this. How come it's, how come we're still having conversations about you being a foreigner and you going after a local, is that still part, I guess what I'm trying to understand, is that still part of the dynamic of investors and acquiring customers mm. being in China? I feel like people always overestimate the sophistication of investors, to be honest. <laughs> I, think, I think if you're an investor and when you are in bull market and you are having to invest in 100 companies a year, you're looking at probably 5,000 companies, your time is quite divided and your time is quite precious. So making those hard requirements, making those kind of hard assumptions helps you filter. And uh, when you have a lot of option and mm. you're just trying to find like the best 100 out of 5,000, you can pick and choose, right? So having those hard requirements helps them make decisions easier. Obviously, does it make sense? Probably not, right? What if a foreign founder did this thing that's amazing? Sure, yeah. but that's the exception, right? If you show them growth numbers that's 20x every year, I'm sure they'll invest in you. Mm -hmm. But if you're just doing the same as a Chinese founder, then they'll probably pick the Chinese founder because they have this preconception that the Chinese founder understands the market better. And when, I, when we are dealing with customers, again, that's not really an issue. Like to me, it's never been an issue, like whether we deal with foreign brands or local brands because they're all Chinese anyway. Yes. But again, for investors, they don't understand. They believe that the decisions are somehow foreign made yeah. or it might not be so localized or maybe like foreign companies have a different culture when it comes to efficiency and insights compared to a Chinese local company. I get that, like I get that point because if we look at a lot of the Chinese D2Cs these days, like they spend a lot more time thinking about how to play the system on e-commerce platforms. They think a lot more about like how to buy ads to get sales numbers up straight away, but they rarely ever think about like insights with their existing content or try to do branding. I feel like the mentality from these companies are completely different. But again, does it change when they get to a certain size? I believe so. If you're a nationalized company and you have plenty of money to spend, or if you're like a very big, Chinese tech company with plenty of money to spend, you're, you're like a large enterprise and you're probably starting to think about like, how do I have a stronger brand? How do I have 
better content? How do I have better insights? And this budget is not so precious to you that you have to take it away from e-commerce to put into marketing. So I think that really depends on the stage of the company. But again, investors, they don't, they're not marketers, right? They are seeing it from a, an external perspective. And a lot of them put a lot of money into D2C recently. So they're talking to those CEOs and they go, oh, to verify the needs, I talk to those people, but they're not even my TA. How they look at it, I cannot control, but how we see the market changing, like you said, there's so many smart people in those large global enterprises that are local Chinese. And these people are gonna move around in their careers Mm -hmm. and they're still young. So in probably five, 10 years, they're gonna get into positions of where they can make the decisions Mm. at local companies. Mm. And that's gonna change the market. So you mentioned the next step is to develop, I guess you say, smart ways to assist brands, right? And I think the headline or the press release when you got the Sequoia funding was that was the, what you're gonna use that $5 million for, some of it, for developing that. And then you got the 10 million from Tiger. I remember reading was more about expanding marketing and R&D generally. So what is, how are you using the funds generally and then specifically talk more about that to build that kind of solution out? Because it's a lot of money you got all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 sure. Sure. I feel like this is a, a two-part two part question. In terms of like product innovation, once we received the money, we realized, not realized, but I think it took a while for us to realize that we needed a lot more product research. Reason is, when you're a resource-constrained startup, yeah. you have to be much more focused on one thing or two things. You cannot afford to do more than one or two. And when you are dealing, when you're working in that kind of environment for long periods of time, it definitely limits your ambition. So when you have new money coming in, all of a sudden, I think it took me three to six months just to convince that, convince our product team that they needed to hire people. They were like, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> well, because that's what they've been used to. We're yeah. fine as it is. Like, we don't need a new front-end developer. Yeah, we're fine. Like, we can mm. do it. Yeah. But it's because the ambition is different, right? The amount of things that you want to achieve in the same period of time is right. different. Mm. Yeah. So when that mentality finally changed after six months, all of a sudden, everybody got really excited mm. because they're like, oh, wait, I, actually, I can actually think outside of the box here. Mm. I can actually think bigger because for so long, we were bootstrapping and we were thinking about resource constraint and we're thinking about saving money and we're thinking about how to improve customer experience because those are smaller features that you could do to improve the existing customer experience versus trying to do something big might work or might fail. So it's much safer to work on experience improvement rather than ambitious new goals. So when we actually all sat together and we did a big SWOT analysis Mm -hmm. of the company or of the product, we came up with a lot more ideas. And uh, in terms of what are we going to develop in, you know, in terms of AI capability or, or machine learning capability, it's just what we find is just improving the process of the manual processes might not be enough. I am personally not a user of Figma, but we all know that Figma got recently acquired for by large Adobe. sums of money by Adobe. And I read an article that the biggest selling point really for Figma, for Adobe to buy Figma, is that Adobe still required like a lot of professionalism. So you needed somebody who is a trained designer to be able to use it effectively. And it's Mm -hmm. a really big, powerful system. But Figma offers something that allowed anybody to be a... And I think in the case of social media in China, 
It's not quite the same, but in some ways it's the same. We have people who are very sophisticated, like the, the Adobe users. They're such a tiny fraction in this market, maybe less than 10%, I would say, in China. And they are so small, you can basically just not think about them too much because mm -hmm. you're definitely going to be able to serve them even with the current current product so you don't have to think about them but then 90 percent of the market is actually so junior basically if you use the designer analogy it's like they'd be only figma users mm -hmm. they wouldn't be able to use adobe at all mm -hmm. so it's not about providing those guys with a simpler it's not about providing these guys with a more complicated product. It's really using getting a simpler product so that these guys can produce a more professional, can pr like a more professional like work than, than by using a product that can actually help them do that, but without trying to improve their own professionalism. So I guess this is where AI and machine learning comes in. How do we make simple tasks that experienced marketers can do very easily but make it even simpler for inexperienced marketers to do it for the first time. I feel like that's really important. And I feel like Kwall, compared to a lot of different SaaS companies out there in China, we have always wanted to focus on what people are actually doing instead of what people want to do. Yeah. I think one of the biggest criteria or metrics that SaaS companies focus on is churning. So it just means like how many people will repurchase your product the next year or the year after and the year after that. Cable has always had a very good churn rate, which is like in, in terms of logo retention, we're above 85%. In terms of revenue retention, we're above 110%, which means we're always growing and we retain the customers. And it's because in some way, I think obviously credit to the design of the product, but it's also because the niche market that we address, mm -hmm. the whole operating operation of your social media, it's something that people do all the time. And it's something that they're actually doing. It's not just something they want to do. There are hot terms out there these days in MarTech, like CDP or DAM, all that stuff. People want to do those things. They sound fancy and they cost millions of dollars yeah. to do. So. First of all, like, it takes six months to set up or a year to set up. And then secondly, the deliverable has nothing to do with the people who are actually day-to-day -day doing the work. It's mm. The deliverable is basically a report done by the company who's providing that service. So it's not really anything to do with the people who are actually doing the work. And to us, those type of services have, are much less sticky because mm. it doesn't change any behavior. It doesn't change the behavior of the existing teams, so then you don't actually create any switching cost, right? If you do, if you sell something into it and it doesn't change any behavior, a year later they go, oh, this is not working. I have zero cost of just cutting this. You haven't changed any of my behavior. I don't miss you at all. So I feel like that is really important as well. Cable has always focused on what people actually will use on a day basis versus what they want to use. Mm. That's very different. Yeah. There's a lot about your plot, your product integrates. If we think about it, it integrates many different types of people and departments into one platform that they could all use, right? Because your whole thing is all about making the process more efficient. When you get, when you sell it through, when you get it into the company, how do you do companies, to see the person that makes a decision understands the impact that you could create, right? Once you get it to the people that 
are then going to be using it. What's the adoption curve of them actually using it steadily over time? Is it a huge learning curve for them to do that? Because then that leads into elements around just retaining the customer, right? Is it one of those things that it sounds nice at the beginning, our CEO, our CMO, the IT person in charge of technology said that this is a tool that we need to use, but then the team doesn't use it. How does that sort of, how do you make sure that sort of stickiness follows through so that a year from now, two years from now, they're, they're, continuing, mm. you, they're continuing to love KOL and the product that you have created? I always feel like, unlike the West, where people really care about efficiency and they value their own, in China, I feel like people don't value their time and people don't value their efficiency. Mm. And it's certainly very, very difficult to change that behavior we see companies like ByteDance creating facial trying to do this right freemium product great product hundreds of millions thrown into it and they are still struggling with adoption right so who are we focused on that with that said the original intention for KWall was always focused on how to improve team efficiency but I think that is only 10 or 20 percent of the problems that we solve these days so instead of getting teams to feel efficiency, we get teams to feel like they're getting insights out of the things that they do, out of the daily operations that they do, or we feel we get teams to feel like they can do less manual tasks manually, and then they can just get it done automatically. So like doing, basically solving the work instead of making the work easier. And then number three is things like security, it's added value. And I feel like Chinese buyers look for added value a lot more than improving current value. So it's okay, I what can you what more can you do for me? It's always about that. Yeah. So it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. We realize that. I feel like efficiency is something that you have to feel over time. Yeah. But there are other features and there are other benefits that our product provides that people can feel immediately. Going from zero to one rather than going from one to a hundred. And I think when we are trying to pitch client, I feel like the big, the key themes are like the zero to one stuff. Mm. But then over time, the yeah. reason why they stay is the one to 100 stuff. So those are two mm. different things. So yeah. you shouldn't try to sell clients the one to 100 stuff when they are looking for the zero to one stuff. Yeah. yeah and you mentioned the efficiency in my work. I see so many of these very niche SaaS companies coming to China. Part of it's easy for them because as a business SaaS is a great investment model because it's software and you just roll it out over the cloud and it scales easily and it scales across different markets easily. And so I see a lot of my American and European companies still coming here with companies you've never heard of. It's all B2B enterprise software. And SaaS was the kind of the darling of investment right immediately after COVID. And I think maybe it's run into a bit of a, hook, a hiccup as COVID is normalized now, at least outside of China. So do you see that in, in either in the way customers approach your product? Are they more willing to look to enterprise SaaS solutions than they were before? You touched on this already. I think maybe a more interesting question is a lot of the foreign SaaS companies come here because they don't have a Chinese competitor. They don't have a Chinese competitor. They're very niche. They'll be like a software that helps you manage 
you're designing the whole flow of a building and clean energy solutions and network connectivity and degrading your building and stuff like that. Very niche stuff because there's no company in China that does that because there's always been such an emphasis on consumer software, right? So do you see that as another reason why you have maybe a head start? Do you have, see local competitors coming up at some point doing the same thing you're doing? How do you feel as far as your head start in the market as an enterprise SaaS company here? I feel like the customer situation versus the investment situation is very different and they're not always aligned. So with the investment situation, the whole SaaS wave started maybe end of 2019, like the recent wave, there's been a few waves mm -hmm. yeah. in the past. The most recent interest from investors started probably end of 2019 and peaked at the, the beginning, oh, the end of 2021. And since April this year has completely died, like completely wiped out. And I feel like the main reason is that SaaS companies were doing so well in the US in 2020 and 2021, the valuations keep popping up. And the simplest rationale when Chinese investors look at this is to copy to China, right? So how do we find the Adobe of China? How do we find the Snowflake of China? How do we find the Sigma of China? So that's an easy argument to have. And when the US market crashed in, in beginning of this year for SaaS valuations, um, for various reasons. I think that just stopped. And you see that right now, like this year, almost no SaaS companies got funded after April. If you ever see any SaaS investment news, it's probably deals that have been done like earlier than that. And then they just PR'd it a couple of months later. That's the only, that's the only reason that you see it now. Like I talked to a lot of my Chinese investor friends this year, almost like zero cases for SaaS. But that's investment though. On the other hand, you look at the client adoption. And I'm very optimistic about client adoption, right? So a couple of years ago, if I went to a nationalized Chinese company and tried to sell them SaaS, they wouldn't even understand what it is. Now I'm starting to get buyers from them and they are understanding the role of tech in their businesses a lot more yeah. these days. And I think as time goes by, younger and more sophisticated buyers will appear in China as they go into positions of power is where they can make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that is going to be great. Like that is going to be great for SaaS overall. But even with a much bigger population in China compared to the US, the market for SaaS is 20 times smaller. So the market is still very early and it's going to take time. It's going to take 20 years to catch up. And SaaS is a slow business anyway. So I was actually at a Tencent Accelerator event because we were actually nominated to nominated as the top 40 SaaS companies in China nice. uh, at the end of last year. So we were invited to, to attend an event. And one of the SaaS local investors talked about like an example or a story that he's had, right? He had a CEO kind of come up to him and going, oh, you know, what should I sign this investment contract with this thing about if we don't go public in five years and have to buy the investor back at 15% rate. And he's absolutely, because there are no commercial banks that's gonna give you any money. There's no way for you as a startup to raise this kind of money from other ways other than the VCs. But VCs in, in, in SaaS, you just think, of, think about them as a long-term loan with a 15% interest. Because no VCs, or in, at least RMB VCs, 
their investment cycle is very short, and then expect some kind of payout very fast. So they're basically like loaning you the money, so then somebody else could take over in three years. But then it's great for the company as well, right? Because you got the money that you needed at that stage to develop. And then if you develop well, then obviously you're gonna find somebody who's gonna be willing to come in and buy that stake away from that yeah. investor at 15% interest. It comes down to the nature of this business. SaaS is a slow business. It's like building a pyramid. You have to take one step at a time. You cannot go up and down so much in this in this market yeah. to a lot of D2C brands where you can go up to 200 million GMV in mm. six months or something. Like mm. SaaS doesn't work like that. Yeah. But it's a steady business with good repeatable income, good margins, good margins. Yeah. If you do it right, if you don't focus on services so much, then but it's a slow business, and that's the nature of the business, and that's something you just have to accept. But overall, I feel like the cons- the buyers for these SaaS products are getting more sophisticated and are getting better. Yeah. Um, another, the third point I want to comment on this is. When the market was really hot, SaaS companies growing at 3x, 4x a year, but that will not happen anymore. Like I, I feel like this year that didn't happen. Next year, it's not gonna happen. For the next two, three years, this is not gonna happen anymore. The market is coming back. I feel like what has supported the three to four X growth is three to four X CAC, CAC payback period. So CAC payback, it just means if you are selling this product uh, for 12,000 for, for 12 months. It actually takes, how many months of that is it gonna take for you to make that money back? So meaning your marketing, total marketing expenses, total sales expenses, total advertising expenses, like basically the total cost for you to acquire that customer, mm-hmm. not including operational expenses, just the total cost of acquiring that customer. I think at the peak, a lot of companies at Series A or Series Pre-A or whatever, at the peak of the market, you're expecting that you're gonna get invested again in six months time. So it was crazy spending. People mm-hmm. were doing 4X the, con- the, the annual contract. So it means like they're, it's gonna take them four years to make that money back, assuming that this customer doesn't churn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now it's much more about efficiency for your CAC payback. So now I think it's lowered down to maybe two years. And in our case, I'm trying to get it down to one year because you just don't see another investment in sight Mm -hmm. in this economic environment. So you will definitely see the slowing of growth in those SaaS companies, but that's that's also going to be okay. But I feel like the ones that are still burning money at three to four X to satisfy some kind of growth target Mm -hmm. is probably gonna suffer a lot and probably will not make it out of this cycle. Yeah, okay. Let's pivot a little bit into team building and culture, right? There's always this debate about building a culture of innovation, right? Building a team that thrives and you nurture and the ability for them to go out on their own or fail fast, right? All these sort of principles within the startup world. Can you just tell our audience your experience about building a team and leading different product, the product team, the marketing team, even motivating yourself to be that leader? over the years. I feel like when it comes to building a team, I I feel like you will definitely have your core members early on. Like core members meaning these guys that will stay with the company boost when the company is bootstrapping and stay with the company even if they are underpaid or overworked. 
I feel like that is going to be your core team, and I feel like that core team is probably the most at the beginning. Yeah. What we have experienced is that we've had that core team for a long time, and that was one of the great things that we've always had. But once we raise money, I feel like the challenge began because all of a sudden you are having to expand a lot faster. This year, despite COVID lockdown, we started ramping up. During lockdown, actually, so we were locked down in April all the way until June, and we hired. We basically doubled the team size during lockdown.、Mm. So we did a lot of remote hires. I feel like adding people is always a morale booster.、Yeah. So it's always like a big pump up. It's like, yeah, like we just hired three more talented people for marketing. Everybody claps、mm. and it's great. But the challenge is like, what if that person doesn't work out?、Yeah. And you have to fire this person, and that's not a morale booster at all.、Right. That's the opposite. So it's a huge downer when people see that this person joined and then this person was let go. But that's what's going to happen when you're doubling、yeah. the team size、yep. in that kind of speed because you you have to you have to make decisions faster. And I think the the other issues that we've experienced is really finding the leaders. Of these, of a large, much bigger team, right? Before, when we we're really small, management wasn't such a big issue. When you increase the team by by doubling or more than doubling the team, all of a sudden management became a new issue.、Yeah. Internal efficiency became an issue.、Yeah. For a while, I think for maybe a month and a half, meetings became an issue. Like we just had so many internal meetings because everybody's new, and then you're always trying to align everybody, and then you're doing all these trainings. And I find my managers doing seven, eight hours of meetings every day, and then they don't. They even they just get to the work that they do at the end of the day because they're just having to train new staff. They have to like align teams and all that. But we have since gotten over that. But yeah, but I, I definitely think that in that second wave of hire.、Yeah. It's a different group of people.、They、don't have the history with the company. They 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 obviously joined the company because of the culture and、mm-hmm. because of the product, and they see alignment with、yeah. their own values. But compared to some of the older people that you could you known for longer, and then you can trust them like completely. Like the newer people, I think they they just have a lot less invested. Yeah. So when they have a lot less invested, I feel like you definitely need to spend a lot more time trying to motivate them. Yeah. And but、I'm, we're very lucky that we have good department leaders、yeah. in place.、Yeah. Even though a lot of them are like external hires, but we were just really lucky to have good people join, and they keep the departments together and motivated. Okay. Yeah. I remember,、uh, and it's okay to take this out later. I remember when we were talking before Sequoia funding came in. And times were a little tighter. You had to. I remember you were telling me you had to go back to, and had to tell the team we can't pay salaries for the next two months. Yeah. Like that. And like, how do you deal with those times and convince people? Yeah. Keep motivating people、yeah. when there's so much uncertainty like that. And you could talk about that. And also, when you get to the not the finish line, but when you get to this kind of a proud milestone. Yeah. What's it like that those people are still there running with you? Yeah. I actually feel like when at that time when we had issues like paying salaries and. All that people were okay. Like people、mm-hmm. took it way better than I imagined,、yeah. because I think expectations were. So people get it, and especially I think the leadership definitely because we've always had a very transparent culture. So then when people know what's happening, I、yeah. think they understand,、yeah. and because they have a good experience of working at Kwall, they see that 
this is only a temporary thing. We will get out of it. We will sell more stuff, obviously, the next year, and then we'll have more income, and then we'll be able to pay them back. So they, people do that, at least in, in that initial group of people. I feel like they value the opportunity to work on this project a lot more than the salary that they're making. Yeah. But if I am in that position today, if I tell like everybody that you know they have they're, they're not going to get paid for a couple of months i'm not sure how many of the new people will stay <laughs> i'm not sure i'm not sure maybe they maybe like half of them will maybe half of them will be like that's fine i believe the company will be out of it and i am invested in the company but maybe half of them won't but that's okay i feel like that's 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 acceptable range but i certainly don't think that having invest investment is really like making it i think the at least the older employees understand that yeah the newer employees might not they might think ah the company just raised money we made it we're gonna be like next billion dollar company or whatever but i feel like the old older employees because they've seen the struggle they know the bad times so their expectations are different and uh, and uh, yeah i believe that their motivation doesn't really come from how much money we have in the bank their motivation really comes from whether they enjoy working in this company and whether they think this company has more room to grow. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style and how you lead the team? I'm interested in that, right? And it really is, again, I, I know of you, right? But I've never really have been able to sit down with you like we have today. How has your leadership style changed? What is it that when people believe in the product, they usually, or they believe in the company, a lot of it comes down, they believe in you. Right, mm. they believe in the leader that's leading the the company through. Can you talk a little bit about what you how just a little bit about how you lead, how you manage your sort of how you motivate people to come in during again, COVID was a pretty bad time, right? The period where you were going through some hardship where you couldn't you didn't have investment, you weren't probably getting MERS that you thought you could get, right? How do you maintain that sort of that I'm the leader, right? I'm. I, how do you maintain that? I, f- I feel like as the as a leader, I feel like you really need to show people that you are capable of bringing success to the company. Mm. I think that's how people believe the rest of the stuff that you're going to talk about. We've obviously had very hard times, and but because of the investments that we did, because of the new clients that we've signed in the past couple of years, I feel like that track record gives people trust in the things that you are telling them. But obviously like I, I believe that my leadership style is two two falls. Like one, I try to lead by example. So I try to work really hard and then I try to show that people show people that like I'm working really hard and I hope you can work hard with me. And I feel like if you are the CEO and you're always on vacation, then nobody's gonna work hard, right? Like people look to you for that example. And secondly, I feel like I try to give more trust and opportunities to fail to the staff or to the, to the department leaders. Because I feel like people want to work for KWOL because they, I think fundamentally a company is just a group of people. That's yeah. all it is. So you obviously want to hire smart people. And once you've hired smart people, you don't want to be micromanaging because otherwise you shouldn't hire these smart people. You should just hire people just here to execute. What you're really trying to do is enable them to make decisions 
but accepting that some of those decisions are going to fail. But aligning on the objectives and then ask for help from them to give you a plan how they would get to where you know you both want to go to but then in between just try to be hands off but then check in frequently because i think the a big difference in 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 a startup versus a more established companies is there's so many more decisions to make there's so many there's so much more volatility and a month at kwol this year feels like a quarter Every month feels like it's been there forever. So many things have happened in that month and that requires you to communicate with your department leaders very frequently to adjust the courses yeah. because it is just the feedback loop is just very fast. Yeah. So you cannot wait until the end of the quarter, you cannot wait until the end of the year. You have to do it on a weekly basis. You need to do a lot of touch points and then every month you need to do a recap. Yeah. But yeah, like I think my leadership style is just try to tell everybody like where what is the external market environment? What is the best course for Kwol to do well in this environment? Where we want to be heading towards mm-hmm. and then after that hire really good people i spent a lot of time hiring i spent probably especially during lockdown i was spending over 50% of my time hiring yeah. even today like i spent a lot of time trying to hire good people and the rest is just trust and open communication and allowing people to fail i feel like that is a really big thing because i don't have the confidence that if i was the one making every single decision that i wouldn't be wrong i believe that i would probably be wrong for half the time and maybe the person but you shouldn't you you should give that same kind of room to fail to your team as yeah. long as it's like a logical choice at the mm-hmm. time that all the logic behind the decision makes sense i feel mm-hmm. like it's okay to fail what's the end goal for you and the company and maybe sequoia has an end goal that he, mm-hmm. that they want for you and what does success look like for you and kwo in the next 5 to 10 years I feel like it's an easy question for the investors, right? They want you to go public <laughs> at 100x valuation. Right. Yeah. And then I feel like for the team, it's an easy one as well. The team wants to make a lot of money from this company, fulfill their career ambitions. Yeah. So then when they go to the next company in their journey, they go, "Oh, I used to work for Kwol," and people respect that, right? So that's what the employees want. But I think for managers, we're all very different. Like for founders, it's very different. maybe me and my co-founders are very different. I'm not going to speak for them, but for myself, I feel like I'm a promissory entrepreneur first of all. At some point in my career or in my life, I realized that I enjoy the up and downs and this is something that I enjoy doing even though it's 90% down and 10% up. At some point you make a decision and once you've made that decision like you are a, you identify yourself as a serial entrepreneur. then really it becomes very simple it's not about the end goal it's about the experience you're going to get a lot of ups you're going to get a lot of downs and try to enjoy the learnings that you have along the way and then you yeah i feel like the learnings and enjoy the process is probably the most important thing because it's very exciting right and then you have control of a lot of these things and it's even the challenges that even the unexpected challenges are very fun yeah. to have to deal with right you're yeah. in the driver's seat and i think most serial entrepreneurs enjoy that if we become successful let's say if we go public or like that i feel like 
yeah, sure, it's a great moment, but that's part of the ten percent. You probably enjoy it for a little bit, and then you'll probably want to go on to the next. Thing. Most most serial entrepreneurs probably won't enjoy being a public company CEO. They probably just want to do something else. Yeah, and I feel like that's what that's what I what I see the value. It's if I'm not working on cable today, I'd probably be working on something else. But you're just part of that journey, and I do believe that you get better at it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Alex. And this has been super fun. And I know you had a lot of these stories to share. I'm glad we could find a chance to talk about it here together. One thing we always do with guests is if a potential customer is out there and really jazzed up about the product now and what it might be able to do for them, or like you said, you're always hiring. Maybe there's some talented person out there that's really inspired by the story. What's the best way for these kind of people to reach out to you or to the company? Is there, mm. yeah? What's the best way to get in touch with you guys? Yeah, sure. I think maybe an email would be mm-hmm. the easiest. My email is alex.lee, spelled L-I, mm-hmm. at kwell.com. So it's okay. alex.lee at kwell.com. Thank you very much for coming on uh, our show today, and uh, stay tuned. Yeah, thank you. Thanks.